Hello, and welcome to episode four of The Masked Parent, real stories from a really bad parent, which is me. If this is the first episode that you've ever listened to from this podcast, I am a single white mom raising two adopted black sons, Percy and Reginald. I go by the name Jane Doe, and I am masked to uh, protect my now adult sons from any running statute of limitations that might be attached to uh, the activities I describe from when they were younger, and to ensure that their existing juvenile criminal records uh, can be successfully expunged and not continue to follow them into adulthood. Today's episode is about how a white lady like me felt that I could raise black children in America as a white person without totally fucking them up. The answer to that question starts with five minutes in a music store in the 1970s. During the run-up to my fifth birthday, I had desperately wanted a harmonica. I begged my dad for a harmonica for my birthday, and I told him it was the only thing that I wanted. I wouldn't need anything else. We didn't have to do anything else, just the harmonica. In my nightly prayers, I asked God each night for a harmonica. But um, despite my wishes and prayers and requests, I didn't actually think I was going to get the harmonica. Asking for things hadn't ever worked before for my birthday or Christmas or anything else. And my mother had flat out told me that a harmonica was far too expensive um, for them to buy for me. So I didn't think it was really going to happen. And then one day, it felt like out of the blue, I was driving somewhere with my dad and we pulled over in in town and he, he stopped the car and started to get out. And I said, where are we? And he said, we're at the music store. We're going to buy you a harmonica. And I, I was amazed that I was actually going to get something that I wanted. I didn't, I didn't usually get anything that I wanted. I was so overjoyed that I wasn't sure that the moment was actually really happening. I don't know if anything in your life has ever happened that felt so good that it seemed like it couldn't really be true. But that's, that's how I felt when we first walked into the music store. And the feeling continued, actually, as we went up to the gorgeous, shiny harmonicas that had like cool designs etched in them. And we picked one out and it came in like this fancy box. I can't remember. It was substantial. I think it was wood, the box. And it just felt so awesome. So cool. Even cooler than I had hoped. I was just like, I think I was hopping. I was so excited. When we took it up to the counter. My dad put it on the counter and he took out his wallet. I was I was really going to get a, the harmonica that I had been asking for. That I was shocked. Like, how could this really be happening? At that point in my life, it was probably the happiest 
most wonderful thing that had ever happened to me. I had never actually asked for anything and then and then gotten it. Like that hadn't happened for me before. And so as my dad's getting ready to pay, the the man behind the counter, I don't know if he was just a clerk or if he was the owner. He like squints and looks hard at my dad. And he puts his old ass hand on the beautiful harmonica box that's on the counter and he pulls it away from us and he kind of leans over the counter and he says to my dad you sure you ain't a n- my dad doesn't answer for a second and i i have kind of two thoughts that happen at the same time my first thought is I knew it was too good to be true. And my second thought wasn't really a thought at all. It was a feeling. It was the feeling of being the victim of extreme unfairness, which I guess was maybe a combination of helplessness and anger. And then... After what feels like 10,000 years, my dad finally responds to the guy behind the counter and sort of sputters, of course not. And then he says something like, how dare you even think that? And the guy behind the counter doesn't look like he really believes my dad. And I wasn't entirely convinced that we weren't whatever the guy had asked us we were like it seemed like maybe my dad was lying and then the man behind the counter stared at us for I don't know 30 seconds and then he pushed the harmonica back towards us and he took my dad's money and we were allowed to leave the store with the harmonica And once we were outside, I asked my dad, Dad, are we My dad said, no, 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 no. No, of course not. But, you know, there was something in the way he said it that, like, lacked conviction. And I I wasn't sure if we were or not. And then I asked, well, why did the man think we were? And my dad didn't have an answer. And he didn't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, At this moment, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, 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 she's not actually white. She's, She's biracial. She's part black. That's why she adopted black kids. No. No, I'm super fucking white. I did a DNA test when I was in my mid-40s to find out that I am 99 point something percent white and one teensy fraction, uh, I think, Central Asian. So why did the store owner think that my dad was uh, potentially a black guy? He thought my dad was a black guy because my dad had a white guy afro. My dad had very tightly curled hair that, if it grew out long, uh, grew upwards and outwards rather than falling down. So, on the way home from the music store, even though I had just gotten my fondest wish fulfilled 
for the first time in my life. I was sad. My dad was brooding and pissed off in the front seat and wouldn't really talk. And the place where we had bought the harmonica seemed like not a nice place. And the man that had sold us the harmonica seemed like a bad man. And I could only really focus on the idea that if we had been whatever kind of person or people that this man had thought we were, that we wouldn't have been able to get a harmonica. I didn't know sort of what the N-word was supposed to refer to. I had no idea that the N-word was supposed to be linked to skin color. Nobody had mentioned that in the store. And because the clerk had asked us that question and treated us that way, it felt very, very possible and potential that I was one of them. And so it felt very scary to me that the things that I would want in life could just be not things that I could have because I was whatever this word was. After we got home, I had to wait until my dad was out of earshot um, to ask my mother about the N-word. By this point in my life, I already regarded any information that I got from my mother as suspect. I didn't have a lot of respect for her, and I didn't think she was very smart. So with that as sort of background, um, my mother explained the N-word as referring to people with brown skin, then went on to classify these people, all the people in the world with brown skin as being lazy and stupid and mean, which humorously is pretty much how I thought of her. And as she was explaining her opinions, I thought about the people that I knew. And it turns out that I knew kids who had brown skin. I had noticed it, but it hadn't really been that interesting to me. There were some kids that I liked that had brown skin and there were some kids that I didn't like. I had also noticed that sometimes when we went to pick my dad up at his job at, a fa at the factory he worked at, sometimes the guys that he would come out with and, and be talking to as he came toward the car, sometimes they had brown skin. And so as my mom finished up her explanations, the main thought that I had was, that's like saying that blue cars are faster than red cars. The paint on the outside doesn't have anything to do with the engine and stuff inside. That's just stupid. After the incident in the music store, I paid some more attention to whether or not people had brown skin or sort of the pinkish skin that I had. But what I really paid the most attention to was my mother and how she acted around black people and how she treated them. And I noticed for the first time that my mother, whenever we were in a store and there was a black person in the store or a black person walked into the store, she would lean towards like another random white person and go, black guy. Just declare it, I guess. Sometimes it wasn't enough to do that. Sometimes she would have to 
point at the black person and then roll her eyes at like whatever white person was nearby. And like, it seemed like most of the time, the other white person wasn't even into it and was either bewildered or uncomfortable. About two years later, our family moved from the Midwest to California and specifically to a neighborhood where nearly everybody was either black or brown. My first day at my new school, and I don't remember what grade this was, I think it was first grade, I was walked into my new classroom in my new neighborhood in California. And I looked out across all the faces of the kids of my new class and I realized that I was the only white person in the class. And actually, I was a little nervous about that. I felt like I stood out and I felt self-conscious. And it made me shy as a new person at the school for a while. And then I forgot. I forgot that I was white and everybody else was black. And it became very normal to me to sit around in a group of black people and listen to all the boys start every other sentence with the N-word. And I didn't even notice anymore. So after the stories I just told you, um, you guys will be almost as surprised as I was when I was 10 years old and my mother brought home a black friend. I didn't live with my mom full time by the time that she made her black friend. And I will explain that in a different episode. But because I didn't live with my mother, I found out about her friend long after they had become friends. And by the time I met her, my mom already considered Claire, we'll call her Claire, to be her best friend. And honestly, I didn't know what to think. And I also just wondered like how the whole thing had happened. And I never did learn that. I never did learn how they became friends. But even that first day that I met Claire gave me a glimpse into how it was that she and my mother were able to find common ground. And that happened because while we were standing outside of my house, something happened down the street in the neighborhood where I lived, where nearly everybody was brown or black. And my mom's new friend, Claire, looked at the boys further down the street and called them the N-word. By this point, I was very used to black people using the N-word in everyday conversation. But the venom with which she had said it and the hard er on the end of the word made me realize that she was saying it not as a black person would say it, but as a white person would say it. And this confused me. And I said, but, but you're blue. And before I could get it out, uh, my mother gripped my arm and dug her fingernails so deeply into my skin that it became clear to me that I wasn't supposed to mention to my mother's black friend the fact that she was black. And so I was so b bewildered by this development 
that I actually didn't say anything because I, reality had reversed itself. I was looking at a black woman who we could not acknowledge was black. Not long after I met my mom's black friend, I ended up moving back in with my mom into the mostly white town where Claire and her family lived. And because we had come from the Midwest and had no friends and family in the area, and because Claire had come from New Orleans and didn't have family in the area either, we ended up spending holidays together and essentially becoming an extended family. And I called her children, my cousins, and I called her Aunt Claire. My Aunt Claire's middle daughter was named Noelle, and she was about two years older than me. Noelle was beautiful and popular. I, on the other hand, was a massive friendless nerd who was years away from discovering how to use a hairbrush. And so looking back, I guess it's not surprising that the weekend before my first day of seventh grade, Noelle threw me up against a wall in the hallway of her house and said, if you tell anyone at school that we're cousins, I will kill you. And I was actually confused for a few seconds because we weren't actually cousins. And I I just, I stared at her thinking that she was like going to figure that out, like that I wouldn't have to say anything. But she didn't let go of me. (laughs) And she was still angry. So I said, Noelle, look at us. Even if I told everyone we were cousins, who would believe me? And she looked confused for a second. Um, And then I saw it dawn on her what I was saying. And she was like, oh, shit, I guess you're right. In becoming close to my Aunt Claire's family, I learned that she considered herself to be mulatto and Creole, but not black. And I learned... um, Lots of other words, like high yellow and octoroon, for discerning and describing the amount of African blood that runs through the veins of a person with darker skin, but that emphasizes that the person is also partially white. I learned that my Aunt Claire's family was descended from slaves and that they had survived all the generations since in an environment where having lighter skin gave you more privileges and made your life easier. I learned that the mantra that had been drilled into my Aunt Claire's daughters and into all the generations that came before them was to marry white or marry light. And so my Aunt Claire only wanted her daughters to date white boys or maybe a Mexican boy if he wasn't too dark. And of course, Noelle, who was my hero made it a point to only bring home black boys. The darker, the better. Even if she had to ask a friend to pretend to be her boyfriend because she was really dating a white boy at school. One time, when I was over at Noelle's house, 
I was standing next to the sliding glass door to their backyard, and Noelle walked into the room in a bikini. And she said to me, watch this. And then she slipped on a pair of sunglasses, gave me a dazzling smile, and then went outside to lay in a lounge chair in the sun. And then somehow, magically, within like, I don't know, 30 seconds, my Aunt Claire appeared, opened the sliding glass door, and screamed at Noelle to get inside. Noelle's response from her chair in the sun was simply, nope. At this, my Aunt Claire jumped up in the air in surprise. She was, she was shocked. And then she ran out of the room muttering to herself. And two minutes later, she reappeared. And even though it was I, I, I probably 95 degrees outside, something like that, she was in long pants, a long sleeve shirt, a massive floppy brimmed hat, and sunglasses. And she ran outside to Noelle. And I, of course, followed because this was fascinating and I needed to understand what was going on. <laughs> and she screamed at Noelle to get inside again. And Noelle was like, nope, again. And then my Aunt Claire said something that I didn't totally catch because I, I just wasn't expecting it. She basically said something along the lines of, you're going to get dark. And Noelle leaned back in her chair, kind of, you know, settled herself in a little bit. And she was like, yeah, I know. I look good dark. And her mom hopped up again in surprise. Like, just like, like, it was like a gun had gone off. She was like, <gasps> and, and, and just then uh, a wind kind of blew up, right? And it tried to blow the hat off uh, my Aunt Claire's head. And so my Aunt Claire had to like put out a hand and clamp down the hat to keep it on. Then she immediately jerked her hand back down again and tried to cover her hand with her sleeve, like tried to pull her sleeve out past her hand. And then the wind came and then she had to put her hand back up on her hat, but like she couldn't get her sleeve to cover her hand. She was afraid of the sun shining on her hands. And she was afraid of her hat blowing off. She didn't want to be dark. And then eventually, when she realized she wasn't going to be able to talk Noelle into going back inside, the fear of sunshine sent her running back into the house. My Aunt Claire was part of a huge family. And eventually a, a second sister moved to California and became my Aunt Camille. And then one year, it was decided that the family reunion that was usually held every few years in Louisiana would be held in California. Our family was invited to the reunion as a matter of course. Like, it, it wasn't even a second thought for anyone. In fact, both Claire and Camille were excited for us to get to meet Nana, the family matriarch, 
who would be traveling all the way from Louisiana and who everyone was pretty sure wouldn't live to see the next reunion. Nana was my Aunt Claire's grandmother and Noelle's great-grandmother. She was something like 100 years old. She might have been older. And her grandmother had been a slave. In the weeks prior to the reunion, um, there, there was a huge amount of activity. As the two California aunts got everything ready and, and got more and more excited for the rest of the family to finally come to them for a reunion. And, you know, they also were just so excited to have Nana come to California. They were thrilled. Noelle wasn't thrilled. She called Nana an evil old witch. Noelle explained to me that Nana was the source of Mary White or Mary Light. Nana was the source of don't go out in the sun, don't get dark. And Noelle hated her for it. The reunion was held at my Aunt Camille's house. And for reasons I don't remember, our family was the last to arrive. And so um, when we knocked on the door and someone opened it, we um, stood looking at the entire rest of the family. And I had that same feeling that I had had in the front of the classroom in first grade, when I realized that everybody else was brown and I wasn't. And I had this feeling of panic and I thought, they're going to make us leave. We don't belong here. And everybody who was already in the room was kind of just staring at us for just a second. And so the longer that moment stretched out, the more afraid I became that I just was somewhere that I didn't belong. And then, like magic, Noelle grabbed my arm and said, oh, good, you're here, and pulled me into the crowd of faces of people that I considered to be my family, but for one weird moment felt really different from me. And then Noelle brought me back into the group of junior high and high school age kids, and we got embroiled in some kind of I don't know, dispute. And I I forgot about the whole thing. Until a couple hours later, when I was chasing other kids in a line, like a snaking sort of line, through the living room. And a million-year-old woman clamped down on my arm with an iron grip. And I looked up. And I realized it was Nana, who'd been placed in a chair in the center of the living room so that she could look out over all the generations of humans that she had helped to create. And when she grabbed my arm, everyone in the entire room, and in fact in adjacent rooms, stopped and stared at us. And the fear that I had felt when I had first walked into the reunion rushed back. And I thought... Oh, of course. Nana knows I don't belong here. She's going to kick me out. And then Nana said to me, Honey, you have nice skin and pretty hair, but you need to get out in the sunshine. Children need to play outside. Everybody 
needs a little bit of color. And I just stared at her open-mouthed. But all the people that had been watching in silence erupted in laughter. And I had no idea why or what had happened. And then Nana released my arm and I ran (laughs) into the kitchen. And my Aunt Claire grabbed me. And I said, what 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 happened and she was crying from laughing and she said she thinks you're one of hers she thinks you're one of her great grandkids nana had thought that i was a great grandkid that had gone overboard about not going into the sun and getting too dark i was so white that to her i looked sickly And this brings us to the reflections portion of the program, where, after listening back and telling these stories, I have the following three observations. One, black and white has never been black and white to me. The experiences that I've had, and certainly the experiences that I've remembered and that I have told you, are the ones where that line between white and black, it's fuzzy. A man in a music store calls my father and I, who are white, so white, the N-word. Noel forgets that we aren't actually cousins. And Nana, whose grandmother had been a slave, thought that I was one of her great-grandkids. Those are the stories that defined me and defined my understanding of black and white. And so one of the big reasons that I thought it would be cool and fine and not horrible for me to adopt black kids was because that line between black and white seemed to me to be mostly imaginary and based on perception. Reflection number two. There's also another answer to why did I adopt black kids and not worry about fucking them up? Well, my real deep down answer is that you fuck up your kids no matter what. And I I already knew that when I went to adopt. Being a parent is really the act of presenting your child with a mixed bag of strengths and weaknesses and virtues and faults. And, you know, one of the things that wasn't great about me was that I'm white. And so when I decided to adopt my sons, I knew that I was giving them the gift of a loving mom that would be there for them and take care of them and love them and in all the world, point to them and say, you, you're mine and you're special and you're more important than anything else in the world. And to me, that was just so much more important to do for somebody than to worry that I didn't have exactly the same experiences. And and that's even an understatement. I mean, 
being white versus being black in the United States, it can be huge chasm of difference in experience. And I, I do know that. But when I was looking at giving the gift of my love, black versus white just, it just didn't seem as important as the gift. Reflection number three. I had a crush on Noel. I don't know if you figured that out from the stories. That lasted from when I was probably 12 to now. <laughs> And I, I followed Noelle in everything, including in her fight with her mother to embrace and be proud of blackness. And in her anger and disdain for the people in the family that wouldn't do that. For me, the most bewildering part of this quest for light skin was the fact that my Aunt Claire's family wasn't even close. They were clearly black. And so at the time, I was scornful of my Aunt Claire's delusion. And I, I was angry at her because I thought that it hurt Noelle and her sisters to hold up an example of something that they could really never be. And then I started recording these stories. And I thought, wow, I sure had a lot of strong opinions for a person who has no idea what it's like to walk around with brown skin, much less walk around with brown skin in the South. The fact is, I wasn't in a position to be able to judge my Aunt Claire because I really didn't understand the world that she had grown up in. And so reflection number three is, I really don't know what it's like to be black. And nothing about how much I love my sons changes that. And there is always a hopefully small but horrible possibility that when they experience racism out in the world, they could come home seeking love and support and comfort and I could end up saying some clueless bullshit that would be a lot closer to a burden than a help. When I adopted my sons, I made the choice of forcing them to deal with a white mom in a society that's racist. My whiteness was the trade-off for having a loving parent. And... There's nothing I can do to explain that away. It's there, and it's a thing that they need to deal with for their whole lives. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.